0: This is The East TraumaCast, Cast.
1: with your moderators, Feroz Madback, University
0: of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City,
1: Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
2: This program brought to you by
1: the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships,
0: and building careers. Well, hello, and welcome to this edition of the Trauma Cast. I'm excited about the topic today. I think it's one that we can all learn a lot more about. Um, this is Dave Morris moderating today, and I um, wanted to first say that, you know, as many of us do, uh, I'm an ATLS instructor, and I've been uh, teaching for a while. Occasionally, I get assigned the topic of intimate partner violence, which is a separate section, uh, separate chapter in the ATLS curriculum. Um, But I feel like sometimes my ability and my skill set to identify these victims and provide the help they need is limited. Uh, Nothing in my residency or fellowship or anything was directly aimed at this type of situation, and therefore I feel a little bit uh, hobbled. So uh, thus I wanted to have a discussion today and delve into this topic a little bit more deeply. Uh, I'd like to introduce my guest first. Catherine Otway, or Cat as she uh, is called, uh, is a nurse with special credentialing in sexual assault evaluation and forensic examination at St. Patrick Hospital in Missoula, Montana. Cat, thanks for joining us. And uh, correct yeah, me if I got anything wrong me. with your uh, intro.
1: No, that's great. Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: Yeah, I heard Cat present at a trauma conference that I spoke at up in Montana a year and a half ago or so in uh, mhm. And Helena, and just was blown away, the, the, just a great great topic and great presentation and very eye-opening for uh, somebody who maybe was a little naive as I was. So, uh, Also joining us is uh, Bilal Joseph. Uh, many of our listeners may know Bilal, a very prominent researcher and prominent in the trauma community. He's a trauma surgeon at the University of Arizona and lead author on a paper published in 2015 in JAMA Surgery titled uh, Prevalence of Domestic Violence Among Trauma Patients. So thank you both uh, for joining us.
1: Thanks,
0: Dave, for having us. Um, Thanks, Dave. Let, let me start off and say, uh, Kat, my first question is for you, um, and this may be just sort of a semantics thing. Uh, you know, For the longest time, I think a lot of people maybe were familiar with the term domestic violence, but more frequently of late I'm hearing the term intimate partner violence. Are these the same things, and if so, why is one term better or worse than the other?
1: Yeah, it seems that uh, intimate partner violence has, uh, IPV has become more of the the vogue phrase for domestic violence. It does typically happen between, violence does typically happen between intimate partners, whether they're the same-sex or a heterosexual relationship. Um, It's just been the new catchphrase and more of the broad umbrella terminology for domestic violence because there can be so many forms of violence between intimate partners who are in a relationship. Okay, so
0: for all intents and purposes, we can kind of think of them interchangeably. It's not like... Interchangeably. A to... Domestic okay, violence, perfect.
1: intimate partner violence are often interchangeable terms. Okay. Um, so next,
0: uh, Bilal, let me let me ask you, um, with your paper, can you tell us a little bit about the scope of the problem, the prevalence amongst trauma patients in particular, and, and sort of, um, you know, how you got involved in this topic and, and what led to your paper? Sort of
2: a broad question. <coughs> sure, you know... Um, Unfortunately, uh, we started seeing a lot more than we – I've been in uh, Detroit, then I was in Baltimore, and now I'm in Tucson, and I can tell you, no matter where I went, uh, the percent of trauma patients that we perceive to see every day um, with some sort of uh, domestic violence involved and the severity of injuries uh, seemed to be uh, quite intriguing, and we didn't really know how often or how much we were seeing this and what the – National trans, I mean, we know the stats that, you know, one in four women and one in about seven men experience some sort of intimate partner violence. And uh, and uh then, you know, who f- performs that violent act? Again, it's usually more than half the time it's a, it's a close partner or someone in the family. So we've decided to look at our national trauma database to get a better idea. And to be honest, Jim Davis, who's a senior author on this, I also heard him give a talk, does uh, an amazing talk about, uh, this and uh actually intrigued my interest even more but what we saw was you know it's at about six per thousand trauma discharges uh, has some sort of uh intimate partner violence or domestic violence associated with it which is quite a significant number considering all the trauma patients we see every year. Um, And we also wanted to see it, are we seeing it more? Because that was kind of what we hypothesized. And, and again, the incidence from 2007 through 2012 was from, you know, 4.9 to 6.8. And, again, may not seem like a huge difference. But uh, the reality is uh, when you put it against the overall trauma uh, admissions we're seeing, that's a huge number. And then, surprisingly, 50% of the trauma patients were male patients. um, And there was about a 6% mortality and that's the other thing we we wanted to know, are we doing enough prevention or intervention prior to seeing any of this? And can we get the resources to do something for this? So,
0: Well, and the paper was interesting because it was a review of the National Trauma Database. But maybe, Kat, I can ask you, do you know numbers or rough estimates of what the prevalence is amongst the general population that maybe aren't selected into the trauma world, if that makes sense?
1: Well, um, I, knew, I do know that strangulation accounts for 10% of all the violent deaths that actually occur in the United States, and that's a study uh, uh from 2003. So that is a, a lot of people dying from the act of strangulation. I know we're going to get to strangulation in a moment, um, but that is the, the data that I know that backs up just how prevalent that particular act can be. Yeah.
0: Well, let since you brought up, let's talk about that right now. I mean, strangulation uh, is 10% of, uh, of violent events, but uh, why don't you talk a little bit more about why it is kind of a special circumstance and why it deserves special attention?
1: Well, mainly it's our law enforcement, fire department, EMS, our first responders that need to be made aware of what a strangulation victim potentially looks like as they roll up on the scene. Uh, most of, The most dangerous domestic violence offenders will strangle their victims, and the most violent rapists will strangle their victims. And we used to think that all abusers were pretty much equal, but they are not. And our research has made clear that when a man puts his hands around a woman's neck, that he has just raised his hands and pretty much said, I'm a killer because these guys are more likely to kill the family pet. They're more likely to kill a child in the home. They're more likely to shoot and kill a police officer. And they're also more likely to kill their intimate partner at a future date. So when law enforcement or fire department hears the woman say, and he choked me, or he strangled me, we now know we're on the edge of a potential homicide. And these strangulations often go unreported. And by coming together with professionals such as EMS and law enforcement, Um, We hope to increase the awareness about just how serious strangulation is and find better ways to document that crime and then ultimately protect these victims. But it really is a huge responsibility on those first responders to express to these victims how serious strangulation is. You may be walking, talking, breathing. You may have a slight sore throat, but it's imperative that you be medically evaluated. And a lot of these victims of strangulation are gonna minimize this and say, oh, you know, he put his hands around my neck and uh, I couldn't breathe, but he really didn't choke me. Um, So they're gonna minimize this and they're gonna blame themselves and ultimately not be medically evaluated. But because of this strangulation research that we have, we've seen women, particularly who are the victims, actually are seeking out medical care much more um, often now because our law enforcement across the nation are getting trained and how to present this to the victims, just how serious it is, um, how serious their injuries can be, how less likely they are to have injuries outside on their neck, uh, but the damage is internal. So uh, real important that these gals do get medically evaluated.
2: Hey, Dave, um, just to kind of add on to that, you know, you you had asked – um again, about the differences again, the other thing is we we always kind of just put all the intimate partner violence into one group, but you know there 's elderly abuse there 's adult abuse, and then there 's um children abuse as well, which i don 't do does that cat all fall under the i p v definition as well or is it just
1: um, I would imagine what, it would, yeah. yeah, elder abuse, child abuse. Yeah,
2: and, and that's the that's the other side of things that kind of, um, when you look at the numbers, it's intriguing that the children and elderly actually have higher mortality and higher um, incidences in trauma patients as compared to uh, the general adult population when we see the victims. So uh, as compared to the general population, I'm not sure if, it's the, if it holds true um, on that side. Maybe Kat can add to that.
1: What's interesting here is we've seen a spike in children who have been strangled by their caregivers, whether it's mom or dad or mom's boyfriend or stepdad. Uh, We've just seen a spike in that. And so I work with the Strangulation Institute in San Diego, and we're establishing a protocol for pediatric uh, evaluation, radiographic uh, medical evaluation um, on the pediatric patient, as well as we're working on one for the pregnant patient who is strangled. Uh, and we already have one in place for the um, adult who has been strangled.
0: Well, let's, uh, you've touched on it a little bit, let's talk a little bit about recognition because I think, you know, if I put myself in sort of the trauma, I'm going to be on trauma call later tonight, and a lot of times maybe my focus is on the immediately life threatening condition, the concern you know, concern for hemorrhage, traumatic brain injury, airway loss, things like that. Mm-hmm. And from what you're saying, uh, it sounds like a lot of times maybe these folks don't present in the typical way that we think of as sort of the quote unquote trauma presentation and, and may not even generate a trauma activation response uh in our hospital. So what uh how do we what's the ideal way and what's the ideal role for trauma providers to um get involved or recognize these kinds of things because it seems sounds like they often don't come labeled as, you know, quote-unquote intimate partner violence. It's something that's just more of a subtlety. Um, right,
1: well, so given the history that a patient might have, whether they've lost consciousness, we know that there's a, an anoxic brain injury that's occurred. There could be visual changes that the patient is complaining about, such as seeing spots or flashing lights or maybe some tunnel vision. Uh, maybe some facial um, contusions because there's been a a combative incident where she tried to get away or he dropped her after strangling her and she hit her head on the coffee table on the way to the ground. Uh, She could have some petechial hemorrhages, uh, subconjunctival hemorrhages, on the eyes, she could potentially have ligature marks, but most of the time, in fact, over half of the time, you're not gonna see any external injuries to her neck. So in the past, we have missed so many strangulation injuries, I myself included, when a gal said she's been strangled and I look at her neck and I don't see anything, I think it must not be very serious and totally not the case. Uh, there can be incontinence, bowel or bladder incontinence. 42% of the time, victims uh will become incontinent during the strangulation. And 17% of the time, uh they will have bowel incontinence during the strangulation incident. So these loss of consciousness, bowel and bladder incontinence are perfect opportunities to raise an eyebrow on our emergency department staff for them to say something needs to be evaluated here. There are neurological signs, um, mental status changes, visual changes, um, stroke-like symptoms they could 50% of the time victims are going to have vocal changes either they're going to sound raspy or winded uh sound asthmatic when they're not uh it's going to be difficult for them to swallow it's going to hurt i've heard female victims say uh because they're spitting as i'm trying to get a history from them i'll say hey i noticed you're spitting and they'll say yeah it hurts to even swallow my own spit so uh very um compelling and also just some difficulty breathing, potentially uh, swelling around the neck. So those are all things that we would say, hey, there needs to be possibly some radiographic studies done to rule out any life-threatening injuries.
2: Dave, um, to add on to what Kat said, you know, at our institution when we realized that the incidence was so high and we saw we actually have an implemented program, because usually in the trauma resource, for example, you're so busy, like you said, taking care of, the injuries sometimes you know and then someone may ask oh who did this to you how did this happen just kind of in front of everyone and a lot of people deny or don't feel comfortable speaking we actually have a social worker who goes into every uh, admission into the ed or trauma presentation that has um, any type of assault or abuse or even uh, general trauma between uh, individuals and and does a mini um, screening tool there's different screening tests um That you can use that are simple like the hark, the hits, or the wasps, which are like humiliation, afraid, rape, or kick or hurt, insult, threaten, or scream, and you basically give them a point for each question, it's so a very simple uh three or four questions you ask, and you and you try to just make them comfortable with what's going on, and that was the other thing that really got us really um going on this is okay fine, they come in, they're injured, you don't find injuries sometimes. But then, where, what happens to these patients? Where do you, where do you discharge them to? How do they go? Where do they have a safe place to go? And if they say they don't want to go back, you know, what's the system in place that the hospital or the trauma center has to help this? And, and the reason why I bring this up, um in Tucson, for example, we have one center for a million people. Um it's called Emerge, and it's the Center Against Domestic Violence, which can help, you know, people who need them, but the reality is that's not enough. Um support for the system for throughput, and so um what if we identify people uh, what we've done is we've petitioned with our local um uh government officials and 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 found funding mechanisms now to help support emerge to develop more uh housing and areas for for these types of victims to go to and 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 actually be treated so I know that's a little bit more than uh, what we were talking about, but definitely we not and we also screen in our trauma clinic now. So not only do we screen in our trauma bay, so in patients who follow up, they get a screening in the clinic. Who, um, our MAs are that, um, you know, get the patients ready in the rooms, go through a four- or five-question survey with patients to see if we can identify any um, risk factors and then be able to act upon them.
0: So in your institution,
2: it's a social worker
0: that does the... Uh... You know, initial questioning or is it?
2: Not initial. We wait till, you know, the medical evaluation has been done and everyone comes out and then the social worker in the ED specifically goes in, spends time, talks to the patient, you know, and approaches it from a uh, non-medical more. I mean, because I think a lot, we all try to figure out mechanism, who did this to, how did this happen and whatnot, but a lot of times, You don't get a lot of, um, you know, maybe the family member may be in there. You don't get a lot of the history. And what we try to do is have a social worker who's there go in and speak to um, the victims.
0: It's a question that I often wonder, and um, I'd like to hear uh, your thoughts. Maybe we can start with Kat first about, um, you know, obviously uh, gender, gender roles, and sort of issues between genders is is one of the key components of this. Um, Are there... Are there, I mean, I, sometimes I feel awkward about it being a male, um, approaching a woman and talking about it, and I could definitely understand how a female patient may be reluctant to discuss it with me, you know, as a complete stranger and male to boot. Are, are there some common, you know, are there some aspects of the, the, that would help me navigate this, or what are some of the principles that... Um we should think about when approaching patients in this in this situation. Uh, what do you What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, Dave. Um, with uh, being a male. Yeah, there's special considerations, but I would just approach it from a healthcare provider and say as a healthcare provider, I ask all of my patients, are you safe in your environment at home? Is anyone hurting you? Anyone forcing you to do anything you don't want to do? And my question I always add in there because my expertise is strangulation is I always say, has anyone ever put anything around your neck and applied pressure? And I can't stress enough how appreciative patients are of this, and I imagine whether it's a male care provider or a female care provider, just asking those in a non-judgmental, uh, non-threatening manner, just to ask all my patients this, and making sure, of course, that the patient is not with a significant other when that question is being asked, because it will give them an opportunity to um, not answer so honestly.
2: You know, um, if I can add on to that, I think I think that... Um, Dave, you bring up a very valid point, and I think it's just developing the trust and the relationship, um that, that the patient, uh, physician has. And it can't always be a, you know, I'm a physician, you're a patient, but more of a relaxed, um, comforting type of uh, atmosphere. But that being said, there's, you know, I want to make sure people, Know if you're interested in getting um, programs going or or learning a lot more about this. The CDC has amazing resources on intimate partner violence and how to prevent it. Some programs, policies, practices, and and, and, in within those references, which is always good to read. There's, um, you know, they've done randomized trials. Looking, uh, it was a JAMA paper looking at, um, um, screening techniques and, and how well it worked and, and the and the efficacy over a year and found that really we don't do a good job. Uh, and I don't know, they, I didn't, I didn't really remember if they went into if a male asked a male or a female asked a female if that made a difference, the, the gender, uh, made a difference, but the overall we don't do well and they don't do, and the programs don't, don't, aren't as effective as we think we, they are. So,
1: I still an area of growth. I agree with that, Bilal, to to add to what you said, we can, as continuing education units and and different in-services that we have at our agencies, talking about screening for domestic violence, and then we kind of leave that at the door and go back to our job. And, uh, patients are super appreciative and it should start from potentially the medical assistant who takes the patient back to the exam room and gets their vital signs. There's no reason why they can't do a brief screening and why the nurse can't do the brief screening. And, you know, it's just a continual thread that is woven through the entire medical care system. And oftentimes patients will say, you're the only nurse that ever asks me that. Or this is the first time someone's ever asked me that. And I say, hey, call out your providers and next time and say, hey, you didn't ask me if anyone's hurting me. Um, because it should be a screening a regular screening
2: and then by the time they're seen in a trauma center in my in my mind it's it's a very uh, i'm not going to say it's too late but it's a very um um aggressive type of relationship by I mean if you're coming to the emergency or trauma center you're involved in very uh um Deep, uh, intimate partner violence type relationship, and Correct. and now we're intervening at a late phase, which is very different than the prevention early on. Some of the other programs they have to to help um, mitigate or prevent this. You know, trauma surgeons are really good at injury prevention, and I don't know how many trauma centers in the country do injury prevention for intimate, intimate partner violence. But that being said, when you're seeing them in the trauma bay now after being assaulted or choked or whatever the you know mechanism is. And now you gotta remember, you're, you're very far into what's been going on and trying to pull someone out of that at that level is very different. It needs a very different approach even from the outpatient clinic. And, uh, and I think that's why it, it takes, you know, you, you know, earlier you said you, guys have a social, but we try to do it at multiple levels where the physicians, the ED physicians and, and especially if I identify someone, well, a lot of times the social will come back to us. We'll, we'll go back in and have a, you know, a sit down talk non-medical focus more on safety and, and, and abilities to for um, you know, getting out and, and, and resources that people can use.
0: So you think the, the white coat, having somebody wearing a white coat, helps people talk more about it? Is that, is that kind of I, what I, I'm hearing? Or I does think, it legitimizes no, it, maybe?
2: i think I think it's it's about creating an environment of safety, whether you have the white coat or not and I think having just a white coat person come in to talk sometimes is not the right answer. I think you gotta have a a, a multi prong approach in the tra- I'm just talking within the trauma center because I think that's a very uh forward uh type of not forward in a good way, but that's a very deep type of involved aggressive intimate partner relationship and violence within it and that, and so now you got to be able to break even more barriers and walls because if someone let it get to that far or if someone was stuck in a situation that ended up going that far then, you know, now they're you know they're not comfortable trying to get away, or you know, and that's, that's the problem. So I think having the white coat coming in at a later time, once it's been opened or identified, once the patient, I feel like what I've seen here is once the patient opens up to someone, then they're a lot more open to anyone else who comes in there that knows they're coming to help them and help create solutions uh, for what's been going on
1: yeah I completely agree with that. The white coat can create a barrier, but also just that uh trusting relationship the all that you talked about before that uh the eye contact and the body language and oftentimes patient can patients can perceive that white coat coming in as I'm here just to take care of your medical needs uh when actually that white coat can be that person that presents that question and does a screening and uh but you're right, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak by the time you guys are seeing the patient in the trauma setting.
0: I want to eventually. I want to get back to the the concept of uh, intimate partner violence prevention. Um, my 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 next question that I want to ask both of you is: um, We've talked a little a lot fairly about screening, but um, my question is: Is how logistically how do you actually go about it? I mean, Bilal, your data would support the fact that this this isn't just necessarily a uh, male on female problem. It's not just a you know, childbearing age kind of problem. It kind of spans all spectrum. So do you screen every single patient? Or logistically, how do you actually go about this? And I'd like to hear from... For both of you, actually, but Bilal, maybe you could start.
2: Yeah, sure. You know, um, we we are the only level one in Tucson, and I say that because we deal with all the pediatric and all the uh, adult uh trauma, and we have a huge uh, geriatric population. So our our um, you know, which are usually the uh, other groups, the pediatric abuse or child abuse and elderly abuse are very prevalent here, and so we actually screen across uh, the spectrum. Uh, for everyone, and that's why we, uh, went you know, obviously we see, you know, we see quite a bit of trauma patients a, a year, and that's why we use a very short screening method. But that again goes back to system resources, the hospital administration willing to put up what is needed. And I think it's all about how you present the case, what you need, and what what is needed in the community. Because part of what we do in trauma is not only just, you know, the medical care, but we have a, you know, an obligation as a community servant to our communities. Kat, how about you and your hospital? How how do you do it?
1: In my setting where I work, I work in an ambulatory outpatient-based uh, based clinic, so I'm seeing victims of sexual violence who are adults. I'm also seeing children. Um, who Since we're also a children's advocacy center, we see children who have been victims of either um, physical violence or sexual violence or drug endangerment, or they've actually witnessed violence. So one of the hats I wear is as a forensic interviewer. So I sit in a room with the child by myself, and there's law enforcement, county attorneys, and Child Protective Services in another room watching me have this structured conversation with this child. And we always end the conversation with the child as, you know, where do you feel safe? Do you feel safe? by going home, Uh, where do you feel most safe at, is anyone hurting you, anyone forcing you to do anything that you don't want to do, besides chores and homework, of course. Um, But uh, that screening is just super important in context of uh, is this child safe to go home uh, with the care provider that has brought them here and signed the consent for us to do our exam and evidence collection. Um, Also, when I'm working with the adult patients of sexual violence, uh, do you feel safe in your home? And she might say, yeah, I do feel safe going home because I'm going to get a restraining order against my boyfriend who lives across town. Um, So there's constantly a screening that threads through what we do here at our Children's Advocacy Center. But I do think it starts on the bottom level, uh of a hospital staff uh, and goes all the way through, and it's that common thread that should be asked of all patients in a screening, um, of course, not, w- again, when that patient is with their significant other if the significant other is with him at the hospital. Yeah. And I have heard um, my husband's gone in for a routine uh, checkup, and in front of me, they'll ask my husband, are you safe at home? And I want to say to them, I could be holding him at gunpoint, and nobody would he, – he wouldn't say that now. So I just think it's so important to ask that patient when they are – alone with that patient and there's so many ways to get that patient alone say hey I have to take your wife back and you know I have to do some special uh, questions or ask her questions and if they're in an abusive relationship that abuser that's with them at this medical appointment will stop at anything to stay with that patient who they're abusing so that can be a red flag as well for those medical care providers to say it was difficult to get this woman alone so I could ask her some questions because that husband or that boyfriend or that Uh, whoever he was, significant other, really was standing in the gap of me getting the patient alone. And I think that should be a red flag for our healthcare providers as well.
0: One of the things that I remember most uh, from your presentation, Kat, um, was the number of patients that present after strangulation in a delayed fashion with stroke and things like that. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it kind of highlights this aspect of Um, screening needs to be sort of an, you know, not just one time, not just one place, but multiple different places and different presentations. And it may not sort of fit the intimate partner violence, you know, bin that we kind of think of when people present with certain kind of characteristics. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about the delayed presentation after a strangulation event. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I will ask women if they've had anything put around their neck or any pressure applied, and they'll look at me kind of funny, and what do you mean by that? And I'll just say, well, the neck has got some pretty precious real estate, and some women have told me that they've been strangled in the past, and it's really important. It becomes like a medical issue. Let's say you had diabetes. You need to tell your provider that you were diagnosed with diabetes eight years ago. Well, strangulation is a similar um, situation where if you've been strangled in the past, it's really important for your uh, medical care provider to know that, that you have a history of having been strangled because we have probably what causes the highest lethality in someone who has been strangled is a carotid artery dissection. So you get a vessel that dissects in the neck uh, because of the pressure that's put on the neck during a chokehold, during a strangulation from a ligature or hands or forearm. And any torque that's put on that vessel that's aggressive and violent enough can actually tear uh, either the carotid or the jugular. And now you have an intimal tear within the um vein or the artery. And that tear will attract red blood cells, and you form a clot. And then that clot can sit there for days, weeks, months, even years, and that clot can finally break off, go to the brain, and we have a stroke. And I actually have cared for a couple patients who have stroked out following a strangulation, one with six hours and one with seven hours post-strangulation. And throughout my, all of my training, I had never seen or heard of anything that quickly. And it just really drove the point home for me when I um, took care of a woman uh, in our emergency department. I was there to do a sexual assault exam to get biological evidence because it was a sexual assault and a strangulation. And they had to remove her and they were taking her in for an MRI because she was having a stroke um, in the emergency department following the strangulation suffocation. And they had tracked it back to uh, a clot that had broken off that quickly and had gone to the brain. So really important for these women who have had a history of strangulation to let their care provider know. Two years ago my husband strangled me or three years ago my boyfriend strangled me. One patient I've taken care of, uh, her boyfriend had strangled her for the seventh time, and that's when she knew that he could kill her, and she made her break and got away, and he spent two and a half years in prison here in Montana. Um, But it's important and imperative that her care providers know for the rest of her life that she has had a history of having been strangled.
0: And so you will refer people for imaging? With a history? Yeah,
1: exactly. So um, right now the research points to a CT angio being the gold standard for the evaluation of vessels and bony cartilaginous structures in the neck. And then an MRA of the neck and an MRI of the neck. Um, They're slightly less sensitive than the CT um, and the MRI and the MRA are the most sensitive for an anoxic brain injury, and to uh, seek out any stroke symptoms or in, any particular hemorrhages. And if there anything positive comes back from that, then there's an automatic consult to neurology or neurosurgery, um, and they're admitted. Um, and if those tests come back negative, then they are continued to be monitored in the hospital from 24 to 36 hours.
0: I mean, it's just such a sobering idea that this can mm-hmm. be a ticking time bomb, just kind of yeah. waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe if we could let's let's uh, transition gears a little bit here, and, and we've touched on it a little bit, but let's talk about um, prevention. What what is a uh, what's the role of the trauma provider in intimate partner violence prevention and uh, community outreach? Um, Bilal, do you want to talk first about that? You mentioned that a little bit earlier.
2: Absolutely. I think um you know the bottom line is we know again uh, there's increasing trends in domestic violence among children and older adults. Um, we know that um we play an intimate a uh, part of what we do is uh, injury prevention and we're good at it. We know that and we know it's effective. Um the, re- the reality is is you have to be able to invest the resources and the time to get out there and do it. We know I mean, I think one of the things that you realize is um the strategies to approaching or um, or preventing intimate partner violence really is is the injury prevention. And I think we're really good um, because the, of the unfortunate side of things, we actually get to see when it's when it's now um, too too far past. You know, like what Kat was just talking about people coming in with clots or injuries to their uh, jugulars or carotids or, you know, devastating head injuries or, you know, mandible fracture, whatever it may be, we can actually, and sometimes by showing what the consequence is on the other side, um, earlier on it helps kind of deter and help people understand the importance of, you know, healthy and safe relationships and, and, and also helps people understand that, um, the resources that are available in the community. So I think, um, there's no, we, we work with Emerge with the Center for Domestic Violence here in Tucson and we hold, uh, twice a year at minimum, uh, uh, collaborative, uh, injury prevention type thing and, and it's, it's amazing how many people come out and say, I know someone, or I've been a victim of, or I would like to be more involved, and and it kind of develops this community that allows for um, this to happen.
0: Kat, do you have any thoughts as well about roles in prevention and what the best way to reach out to these folks prior to a devastating injury is?
1: Yeah, I think education and screening is probably the most important, getting education out there in our communities. Um, I do strangulation presentations for any type of community service um, organization that would ask me to, and, and I chalk it up to educating our jury pools, because by educating the public, those people are ultimately one day going to serve on a jury, and as an expert witness as I testify, I'm educating that jury so that they can now make a decision on was this lethal force on this person. So, But... I think the most recent research I'm aware of is that a woman has to leave a domestic violence relationship 13 times to finally leave for good. She can practice leaving. She can practice leaving. She can leave. Uh, but she ultimately keeps coming back, coming back um, by whatever means of coercion from the abuser. That is, you can't make it out there without me, and I'm the only one that's going to love you, and so you need to come back. And she falls back into that um abusive relationship again and then the average is the 13th time that's when she makes a go of it and can stay away and makes that break but we know that when women have that plan to get away it is one of the most dangerous times for a woman because if she's found out to have a plan chances are the domestic violence is even going to escalate more so back to what Bilal says to have resources in place to have programs in place um, to have shelters ready for these women uh, when it's um, I'll say, abusive on a smaller scale um, before it escalates to the strangulation.
2: And, and um, if I could add to that, David, I think, you know, it's not just educating the or injury prevention programs toward the victims. I think, you know, you just said you're going to be on a trauma call later on tonight, and, you know, and how do you address this? I think educating hospitals, administrators, our nurses, our residents, our students. And the more people that know and look for it, the more you're going to find it. Our clinics, and, and that could go on and on. So I think that's, you know, um, this is Denise's podcast. You know, he does an amazing job every year. At some, um, you know, having some sort of injury prevention program lately, it's, we you know we've done stop the bleed, we've done distracted driving, and maybe what we need to do at our next uh, national meeting is have an injury prevention program at whatever city we're at um, on domestic violence and and reach out to the community and help the community raise awareness. And these are the things from both from a, a national standpoint all the way down into the individual uh, providers because you never know who's going to. That victim's gonna connect with or open up to and, and they have to be able to recognize um, the signs and the symptoms of these things, and and the subtle, and usually it's the subtle signs. And then as you kind of sit there more and more, and, and get because we're all so busy and we're always go go go, patient patient, and and we don't sometimes it's not always like you said the white coat provider who who identifies this. And I think that's why injury prevention is not just toward the patients, and that's a key component and education and that is a key component, high schools and on and on. But it also goes into educating the, the medical professionals or personnel at the hospital, all the way through from, you know, everyone who's involved with any part of the patient care.
1: Right, identifying it before it happens. Yes. Yeah. Um, Kat, are
2: there
0: people like you in other states besides Montana? The, the people up there obviously have a great resource in you, but if you're in, you know, Arkansas, you're in Florida, are there similar folks and is there a way to figure out who's available to come and give these kinds of talks?
1: Uh, There are. So through the Strangulation Institute in San Diego, California, I call that the epicenter for all things strangulation. So they offer twice a year advanced strangulation courses. And, again, that would fall under the umbrella of intimate partner violence and just how important that is that these uh, victims seek out the medical care. And so these trainings are open to law enforcement, county attorneys, child protective service workers, medical doctors, nurses, dentists, um, who would have that up close and personal relationship um, with these patients. So, yes, across the nation there are people who have this similar training.
0: And uh, what I'll do is I'll put a link to uh, their – I'm presuming they have a web page. I can put a link to they their do, page yep. uh, that will Strangulation training
1: Yep, strangulationtraininginstitute.com.
0: Okay, perfect. And uh, I'll put the CDC resources uh, link as well, uh, Bilal, for what you mentioned earlier. Um this has been a sobering but a very enlightening conversation. I appreciate you both taking the time to to help us out with this and to kind of help raise awareness. I think maybe the most important thing for a lot of us is just to kind of get over the understandable but, uh, but barrier discomfort that we may feel towards the topic. And the human nature is to try to shy away from things that make us uncomfortable. And I think this is certainly true for this topic. But maybe the most important thing is that we can come to grips with it as providers and then start to look for ways to uh, identify and recognize these these victims and uh and ways that we can uh, reach out. Um I've I've heard a sobering statistic and I don't know if this still holds true, but something like fifty percent of victims who are killed by their uh by their perpetrator have been seen by a healthcare provider uh in the year prior to their uh to their homicide and uh that's kind of sobering when you think about Think about that, and we often hear in the trauma community that the only thing more tragic than a death is a death that could have been prevented. And so I think uh, where we're at the the front lines of this, uh, we definitely have a role and a, an opportunity to, to intervene and make a difference on this. So.
1: Right, that's a really um, good point, Dave.
0: Thank you both again for joining us. I think, uh, unless you guys have any other final comments, I think we can wrap up here.
2: I just want to, uh, Dave, really emphasize um, first thank you uh it's this you know we we focus on a lot of other issues uh gun violence helmet laws seat belts and whatnot and distracted driving and trauma and and this is another area that you know um you're po- I, by even the simple podcast if we can get you know a few of the trauma centers out there um to focus and develop programs or share their stories of how they're doing this already um you know this is a movement and and Sometimes you know something like this podcast, which you put together and, and and are you know running with, I think could be a start of uh, something uh, big. So I really thank you for um, putting this together and allowing us to be a part of it. Yeah, you bet.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. One thing I just want to um, um, empower other providers is to remember that with strangulation, there's only seconds to unconsciousness and only a minute or less and someone is dead when their airway or their circulation is compromised in their neck. So it can happen so very quickly. And um appreciate you increasing the awareness of intimate partner violence.
0: All right. Well, thank you both, and uh, hopefully we can make a difference. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.